Romans 5:12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those sinning, oh, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more would have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift uh, following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned uh, through that one man, much more, of the, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. kind of dark in here tonight. Is it, uh, I guess it's because it's dark outside, but it just, yeah, I don't know. Are the lights up? Uh, okay, maybe, maybe so. Uh, your light is shining. Don't get me wrong, but it's just a little dim. Uh, let's pray. God, thank you for this time. Thank you that we can be here together. We pray that your word would be alive. We pray that you would give us uh, wisdom and insight on difficult topics. And we thank you in advance. In Christ's name, amen. Well, way back in 1989, uh, Billy Joel wrote a song called We Didn't Start the Fire. I'm just curious how many people have heard that song. Okay, not bad. We didn't start the fire. And, uh, and through it, he rhymes a hundred headlines from 1949 to 1989. You know, he goes through these things uh, that were headlines of the day, many that were not easy things. And uh, the way that song came about was he was in the studio, and uh, he had just turned 40 years old, and there was a 21-year-old in the studio uh, lamenting, sad about living in the 1980s saying, you know, this has been such a terrible time to have to grow up in. And Billy Joel said, yeah, I, you know, I hear you. And then the guy said to Billy Joel, but you didn't have that problem. You grew up in the 50s. And Joel was like, wait a second. And that was sort of the motive for him writing the song. 
his point to say, as the chorus says, we didn't start the fire, it was always burning since the world was turning. It's always been there. Well, in Romans 5, Paul basically talks about how the fire got started. You know, if we did the headlines from way back in first century or even did the headlines from just this year, we'd have to admit that there is a fire burning. And I know as we move into this, for some of you, you might say, you know, I can't really get down with this idea of historical Adam and sin, and that's why the fire's burning. And I would ask you to keep an open mind, but I would also say, do you have some account for why? Right? There's no denying the things we see and the things that are done. Do you have some way that you can explain that? That seems pretty important. So tonight what we'll get into is how the Bible explains that, how the Christian faith does. And one of the reasons it's difficult is it really cuts at the heart of some sacred things in America. Individualism, the innate goodness of people, what we understand as fairness. It really challenges a lot of those thoughts that we have. But as we do, we'll also see that there is some real hope it's only possible with that explanation and understanding. Sure hope, concrete hope. And in summary, it's this. Basically, our relationship to the first man and the God-man helps us understand why we're in the plight we are and the redemption there is. Our relationship to the first man and the God-man. Now, Paul if you know, you've been with us, Paul has been talking about, since the start in Romans, that all of us have been impacted by sin and moral evil, that it's universal. It runs across irreligious, it runs across religious people, it runs across every age, it runs across every race and ethnicity. It's a universal fact. But then he comes in to say, but something has happened. God has sent his Son into the world to deliver us unto salvation and righteousness, and now we have the hope of glory. Now, you can imagine at that moment when people read that, they go, yeah, but what about all the sin and death that I see around me? How do you account for that? And so Paul seeks to give an explanation of why and how, not only why we got into the mess we're in, but how God has reversed it. And he does this by comparing the careers of the first Adam and the careers of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Their responses, their lives, and the difference it makes. And as he does that, it gives us, I would say, credible sense, a credible way to make sense of the world. The world causes a lot of anxiety. You know, this week, our nation felt a lot of anxiety. And the reason we get anxiety is because we're struggling to make sense of things. You know, you heard words this week like stunned. Struggling to know how do I think about this. The world. God doesn't want us to live in a place of chaos and confusion. I'm not saying that God makes everything simple. But the idea that our Creator has spoken and desires that you and I can make sense of the world and what we see. And so that's what we're getting presented today. And so as we look at this Adam, the two Adams, we'll look at how they are similar and how they're different. 
just simply how they're similar and how they're different. So first of all, how Adam and Christ are similar. Now by Adam, I'm talking about the first man. And maybe immediately you go, I can't buy this. You know, I'm someone that embraces naturalistic evolution. There's no way I could buy into this idea of an historical figure at the beginning of the headwaters of the human race. And I would say, if that's you, belief in evolution is not incompatible with the idea of a human parent at the beginning of the race, uh, what's called monogenesis. And if you read the debate, and in fact, it's you know, been going on for some time, and I've been following it for decades, you know, it really goes back and forth. Science has not settled the issue of whether or not we actually found ourselves descending from one human pair. You know, set aside what you believe about evolution. So I would just encourage you, don't close yourself off to the idea, because even scientists don't agree on that. But that's probably not the hardest part of this. You know, whether you do believe that there was an Eve or an Adam of some sort. The thing that really makes this passage difficult is not that they're called the father of the race, he's the father of the race, but rather he is the representative of the race. That's where the real rub comes in. This idea that God may have started with one person, but he made that person a representative of all people. That's where we begin to go, wait a second here. And that's what Paul is saying. Follow his argument here. It was one man's trespass, that is Adam's sin, through which sin came into the world, verse 12, and through which many died, verse 15, death reigned, verse 17, and many were made sinners, verse 19. By that association, he's saying that Adam just didn't live, but Adam's behavior had something to do with every human being on the earth. Now, on one hand, the idea of representation isn't a foreign concept to us. You know, we have things, we have a representative government. We have something called power of attorney, where you actually give an attorney to power to act on your behalf. Unions have trade negotiators, where they trust the negotiator to basically get the the deal that they want. We're used to representatives. It's not something that's outside of the realm of uh, normality. You know, it's been interesting in the wake of the election and the conflict and the protests and all these things. um, You know, what's come up, and and you've heard President Obama and Hillary Clinton really stressing this, saying we must accept the outcome of this election, even if you don't like it, you must accept it because we're a representative form of government, right? And this is how we go on. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't mean people can't protest, but what I'm saying is they're sort of reinforcing this idea, right, that we live in a representative government and it makes life possible. And so my point is it's not off the grid that someone would represent it and our relationship to them would have impact upon what we are. Now, where we get into conflict is we want to choose our representative, right? So that's where we would say, hey, you know, I don't mind this idea, but I want a voice in who my representative was, and I don't remember voting for Adam. I don't think I got asked about that. You know, it reminded me of this commercial I've seen, and I was trying to figure out which one it was. Maybe you've seen this where uh, someone calls, like a a call station, uh, you know, where agents hang out, and when they get the person on the other end, they look just like them. You know know which one I'm talking about? What, 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 What is it? Which... Discover car. 
Yeah, Discover Card. So, you know, they get on the phone and it's, hey, it's someone just like me. And that's what we want. We think if I had someone just like me representing me, everything would be perfect, everything would be good. Well, you got someone just like you. This is what the Bible would say. Now, another reason we struggle with this idea is we are in the West. And Western values are individualism. We tend to see human beings as individual autonomous units. Everything stands on our decision. My success or failure rides on me. That's our thought process. But we have to understand that's a pretty cultured view and a modern view. People in other cultures and throughout centuries don't really have that idea. They understand themselves as part of the whole. Maybe it's part of the tribe, part of the family, part of the community. Some of you were raised in homes that were much more communal in their view than this idea of just individualism. So we have to take that into account. And there's actually, I would say, some grace there. Because what if your only hope is everything riding on you? What if your only hope is your, your success and your failure? That's a pretty scary thought to me, personally. I might want some, somebody representing me and showing me some grace and giving me some help. But what if none of this is true? What if we just said this? God restarted humanity and said, okay, you don't like the representative system. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with all over again, and you can give it your best shot. So here's the golden rule. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And by the way, love me too. And go off and do it. Well, I don't know if I'd make it through the week any better than Adam Fair. So it gets into this idea of, is it really unfair? And I want to unpack it a little bit more here. We all, deep down, feel like we could pick a better representative. I've been watching this show, Friday Night Lights. And uh, it's on Netflix. And, um, you know, it's about this fictional town, Dillon, Texas. And, uh, you know, it's all about football in Dillon, Texas. The whole thing, the, the town's idol in life revolves around the high school football team. And this poor coach, no matter where he is, if he's in the grocery store, if he's at church, if he's riding home with the radio, everybody always thinks they know better about who ought to play. Right? Everybody always knows who the better quarterback would be. It's constant. They think they know better than the coach. Well, we believe we know better than the coach, God. But just for a second, grant that the fact that God could be all-wise, all-good, all-just, could it be that he actually picked the absolutely best representative that you and I could have had and placed that representative in paradise without any competing factors and with that representative stacked the deck so that he would succeed and she would succeed? Could that also be the heart of God. And the scripture would say that, and might we say that this God, if he could conceive of a system any more fair than that one, he would have done it. Now that's giving the benefit of the doubt to God's character and integrity, which I think gets lost in this. But we're told that both Adam failed, and we have failed, and that we not only sin like Adam, but we sinned in Adam that we were represented, represented in Adam. And we see this whether a kid is two years old and they won't share their toy or a 40-year-old who won't share their car, right? The Bible would say that you and I aren't as bad as we could be. You know, we're getting into the doctrine here of original sin. 
How does sin exist in it? It doesn't say that people are as bad as they could be or they don't do relatively good things. But you and I have a bent towards self. And it's been there for a long, long time. We have a bent toward judging people that didn't vote like us. We have a bent toward dismissing people who didn't vote like us. We have a bent toward thinking the worst of our neighbor. We have a bent toward, you know, holding people to standards that we don't even hold. I think I don't really have to make a case or an argument there. At least my life. I'm guessing your life as well. The spirit of Adam is well evident in our lives. But there's a bigger problem, too. You know, unless you believe the problem is deeper, you know, let's say this. If I believe all I'm dealing with is a little symptom, when what I'm dealing with is a a disease, it's really not going to be helpful. I'm not going to get the treatment that I need. The Bible would say that sin isn't just action, it's condition. It's not that you and I just have a bad day, but rather we're fighting a disease in us. And if you want to have success over that, you really have to look at it more deeply and soberly than perhaps you have before. You know, the theological tag for this and philosophical tag is called federal headship, the idea that God placed a representative. Now, what could be the good side of this? Well, the good side of this, we're told in verse verse 14, that Adam was a type to come. There would be a second Adam. So God's response to the human representative and our ongoing, you know, waywardness from God isn't just to blow us off and judge us, but rather he sends the greater and best representative of anybody. Talk about the deck being stacked. He sends not just another godly person. He doesn't send an angel. He sends the Son of God himself, God the Son, to come and to walk in our footsteps and to re-represent us so that we have this opportunity to find a new chance before God And this part of you and I that struggles with our sin, we have to realize sometimes, you know, the cultural argument is, well, this is all society imposing these things on us. You know, if we didn't, I wouldn't need this idea of a Savior if society didn't impose the law on me. But, you know, he makes the point here, Paul, listen, this stuff was existing even before the Ten Commandments came down, before they were written. It's in our conscience. It's always been an issue. So what do you do with something that goes that deep and that wide and that far back? You need a big plan. God sends super representative Christ. Now let's get to how he differs from Adam. We're told that Adam, through one man, sin and death came, and death spread to all men because all sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. So what you have here is this cycle that the trespass brought condemnation and it resulted in death. Now, in the Bible, death and condemnation are the same thing, okay? Now, in our world, uh, well, I'll get into that in a second. I'll wait on that. But this idea that the transgression results in guilt, and we have this, right, in our justice system. We understand if you break the law, there's going to be some consequence. We struggle with the idea that it should be death, Well, that might be because we don't understand God's holiness and we don't understand the extent of our repeated failures and repeated sin. But we have this going on, but God sends the Son of God to reverse that. Transgression, condemnation, death. He comes and reverses that very thing with 
right, with obedience, righteousness, and life. He comes to reverse what Adam did. Now, maybe you struggle with that idea. Let's think about something very practical. The Chicago Cubs. Now, it's really interesting, right, to hear how people talk about this victory if you're a Cubs fan, right? I mean, this is the language you hear. We were cursed. We were cursed. And this game, this game seven that we won, this series erased 108 years of curse, right? I mean, that's what people understand this to be. And it's reality, right? There's something about that thing that was just hanging for years and years, and now it's gone away. So one game, one team, you could say, how could one team 108 years later really take away a curse? It just does, right? It's what we feel. It's what we know. Well, here you have in the gospel, God sends one man to remove the curse of all time through his life and obedience. What does he do? And Paul does this how much more argument. You know, if Adam resulted in this, how much more did we get this? What I'm trying to say to you is this representative system works out for us really well. Because it could be that God stops everything and says, here's what we're going to do. You didn't like who I picked. And so everybody's going to have their own shot to obey my law, love their neighbor, and not be selfish. And, and, and if you don't believe any of this, I would say as an experiment, start tomorrow. Tomorrow, start loving your neighbor and do it perfectly. And we can talk at the end of the week and see how you did. I'd love to do that. But the point being this, that all of us are in this need. So Christ brings two things. One, instead of condemnation, we get the gift of grace. The gift of grace. Instead of this idea that everything rides on me, there's something for me when I fail. There's something for me when I can't live up. God meets me not by going, you're going to have to work for your wages, but he's going to say, I will send my son to live the obedience that you should have had. And so you will receive the gift of grace instead of condemnation. And this is what he says in verse 16. You can follow along. And the free gift is not like the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Now, one theologian reflecting on this said this, that one single misdeed should be answered by judgment. This is understandable that the accumulated sins and guilt of all the ages should be answered by God's free gift, this is the miracle of miracles, utterly beyond human comprehension. Where the first Adam was vulnerable, the second Adam was invincible. Where the first Adam was self-seeking, the second Adam was self-sacrificing. Where the first Adam was death-dealing, the second Adam is life-giving. This is what God does in the sending of his son. Now, you know, in your bulletin, I put this little chart. And uh, I didn't come up with it. It's something that uh, Tim Keller has done in his study. But the reason I put in there is it really gets at this concept of 
how would we, how do we understand life apart from the gospel? And it has, you know, basically if you're looking at it, it says legalism, you know, this idea that I have to live all of it, that I have to live and do everything right. And then you've got license, and then the other side is rather license on the end, then gospel. And how these ways view humanity and view life. The gospel really matters. The gospel speaks to things that nothing else can speak to. As you're reading down that list, you see. It's a third way that isn't understood in our culture and what we see. And it leads to life, which is the final point. In modern life, uh, we're, try, we're told, we're told uh, that we should accept death as natural. It's a natural course of life, the cycle of life. Uh, that is unless someone you love has been murdered or a parent loses a child or you lose a best friend that you love. It feels anything but natural, right? I was thinking about uh, the play Angels in America by Tony Kushner. And, um, you know, it's a play about uh, AIDS and homosexuality in the 1980s and the struggle there, the, the great death that was happening in the community. And in that play, one of the characters, and of course it's fiction, one of the characters uh, is lifted by an angel to God's throne. And he's just venting about everything he feels, and he's struggling, and his anger, and the fact that he's dying, and friends are dying. But this is what he says. I recognize the habit, the addiction to being alive. I want more life. We all want more life, every one of us. The Bible understands that you want more life. God wants you to have more life. He wants you also to see that there's more to this life than just this life. Jesus said, I have come to give life and give it abundantly in the face of a world of death and transgression. In the Bible, death isn't nat natural. It's judgment for sin. In the Bible, death isn't natural. It's the last enemy to be conquered. And so we find in the book of Corinthians saying, where, O oh, death, is thy victory? Where is sting? When Jesus took our death and suffered the death of all that would trust in him and rose from the grave, it was the best news in the world. It's still the best news in the world. Because it means that there is life, real life, and someone possesses it. Jesus said this very thing, right, when his, one of his best friends died, a guy named Lazarus. And Lazarus' sisters are weeping, and all they can feel is judgment, sin, and death. And this is what he says. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And you'll notice here that Paul doesn't just say that life reigns. He said sin reigns. He doesn't say life reigns. He says we reign in life. Sin makes you and I slaves to guilt. Slaves bondage to guilt. You know, I, I don't know how you understand and think about life. But I will tell you, you know, there's alternative worldviews that I don't think justice to the, do justice to the fact that you and I deal with true guilt. There's plenty of false guilt, but we tr deal with true guilt too. We deal with judgment for the things we've done. We deal with the fear of death. 
And it's the Christian gospel that comes in there and says, you can reign in life beginning now. That God has taken the slave and has made them kings and queens. And they can begin now to reign over those things and reign forever. That Christ has not just saved people, he's liberated people. This is what the representative has done. But there's a critical qualification. Paul says for those that receive him, in verse 17, for those that receive him and embrace this representative, this is life. There is a reason why there is heartbreaking evil and sadness in the world. It's not just chance. Um, Education hasn't seemed to fix it. Wealth doesn't seem to fix it. It exists and it's been burning for a long, long time. And the one who is living water, Christ, comes and he puts out the fire in our souls and we begin to burn in a different way. We begin to burn with hope. We begin to burn with life. We begin to burn with grace. And we become actual Chicago Cubs. We begin to reverse the curse in our city. We reverse the curse in our nation. What a great moment for the church right now to stand up and speak and say, whatever is deemed as curse upon fellow image bearers, we stand against that. We stand for those that we disagree with. We respect those that we don't understand. This is what we do, the fire we burn with. Let's pray. Lord, um, we thank you for sending your son as our representative. We thank you for your desire to help us understand, even if there's confusing parts to this and none of us completely understands it. But thank you for the light that you have shed in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.